Our New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32, going all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 66. This is the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now when the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. 
The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember now how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through the Gospel of, of Matthew. And we've been going through Matthew for a long time, actually since the Sunday after Easter of, of last year, except for um, a break during Advent where we looked at Isaiah. And today we come to the passage of the crucifixion. We, we come to a scene that in so many ways all of the book of the book of Matthew has been pushing us and driving us toward. So before we look at this very important passage, let us together turn to the Lord. God our Father, we thank you for the truth of the cross. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the gospel of your son Jesus Christ, which is declared, that is proclaimed in this passage. I do pray, Lord, that all that follows would be faithful to this, this text and your intentions for it. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would more deeply work in the truth of Christ into our heads, into our hands, into, your, into our hearts as your people. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor and writer Kerry Newhoff, he, he tells of a recent survey that he came across, and, and it was an interview with, with 7,500 full-time American employees that were in their 20s and their 30s, and it actually found that 70% of these employees are currently undergoing some form of, of burnout. And I imagine if they had interviewed people who work in the home, they would have found a very, very similar result. And reflecting on this, Newhoff, he writes the following. This means that a number of young adults are feeling worn out from work and life before they hit their 40th birthday. He also warns us that our reaction to overwork, it can also take a dangerous form. It can often take the form of, of escape and, and distraction and and he writes the following of, of these particular circumstances. It's, it's a bit of a long quote, but it's a good quote. He says this, It may eventually dawn on you that this life that you've anticipated for so long is one that most days you long to escape. For some of you, the escape will happen every day at 4 o'clock or 5 or 9 You'll end up binge-watching your favorite show over takeout because you're too tired to cook. Or you'll be scrolling social media until your eyes sting and you fall asleep with your phone in hand. Some of you will escape in a third glass of bourbon or wine most nights. 
Some of you will find yourself drifting away from the people closest to you and flirting online with people you used to know in high school because your current relationship is oh so dull despite what your Instagram feed might suggest. Or maybe you'll live for the weekend or your next vacation or the game. Some of you will bury your pain with, ironically, more work. Workaholism is, after all, the most rewarded addiction in the nation. You can be fired for drinking too much, but working too much usually gets you promoted. And I think as we listen to this, we can, we can see at least one of our own personal tendencies in Newhoff's words. But the problem is, is that we look around, we often look around, and we see so many people living the same exhausted lives, seeking escape in the same distracted ways. And we think this is just the way that things are. And again, workaholism is the addiction that's not only supported, but has actually come to be expected in our society. And what happens? We see a breakdown. We see a breakdown of ourselves. We see a breakdown of our community. We see a breakdown of our relationships. And what's the result? We're lonely. 15% of men report having no close friends at all. None at all. And a recent Harvard study found that 36% of Americans report from suffering serious loneliness. And we're creatures that are both physical and spiritual, so we can't simply assume that these emotional struggles have no effect on our bodies. Suffering from loneliness, we found, is just as lethal as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And so, taking together, taking together, what it is that we are often working for, what we are often striving for, is to become lonely workaholics. That's the ideal that our culture so often pushes us to. And this is often the ideal that, that we can either explicitly or implicitly strive for. And at the same time, ironically and tragically, once we're there, this is so often the reality we try to escape by way of a million different distractions. I mean, how many of us are in this place right now? And how many people here are thinking, yeah, that, that sounds really nice, that things could be different, but really that's not actually possible? And this may seem like a strange way to begin a sermon on the crucifixion, but this is what the cross is all about. In all of these ways, through overwork and exhaustion and loneliness and isolation, we are uncreating ourselves. We are unmaking what God has intended us to be. We are trading life for death. We are shrinking and withering and suffocating, just, just like the plant from the kids' sermon. But here's the thing. On the cross, Christ himself suffered decreation. Christ, in his human nature, in his humanity, underwent undoing, uncreation. On the cross, Christ experienced everything that our life of overwork and loneliness and distractions ultimately lead to. But Christ did this so that we might not suffer these things. Christ was uncreated so that we might have new life. Christ endured the cross so that things really can be different, so that we really can pursue a life of flourishing, so that we truly can have deep relationships of communion with both God and neighbor. 
Christ gave up all of these things on the cross so that we might have them in full. And with that in mind, let's look at today's passage under three headings. Our uncreation, Christ's uncreation, and third, recreation. Let's look first at our own uncreation. And I want to start our examination of this passage by looking at the middle of it. While Jesus hangs on the cross, we read the following. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And I believe to to rightly understand what happens on the cross, we have to understand what is happening here. From noon to 3 p.m., the lights are blotted out. The land was covered in darkness. And so we have to ask ourselves, why would this happen and what does this mean? Theologian Peter Lightheart is, is very helpful commenting on this passage. He writes, Creation begins with darkness giving way to light. And when lights go out and the world goes back to darkness, it is a signal that creation is being undone. It is a sign that the work of creation is moving in reverse. What is it that we see at the very beginning of creation, at the very beginning of the Bible? God said, let there be light. And there was light. The coming of light, of brightness, of luminescence. This is the first act of creation, and this sets all of creation on its course. This is how creation began. Let there be light. And everything takes shape from there. But here, in a kind of total creational contrast, we see something very different. Let there be darkness. And there was darkness. Darkness covered the land. Again, as Lightheart tells us, it is a sign that the work of creation is moving in reverse. What we have here is de-creation. It is the undoing of creation. It is the unmaking of what God has made. Like a movie reel of of a sunrise being played in reverse, everything is going back. To darkness. But why would this be? The Apostle Paul is helpful here. He tells us in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In both of these verses, yes, we find the goal of redemption and the aim of salvation, and we will get to that in time. That's very, very important. But for now, notice what Paul says happens to Christ. Christ becomes a curse. Christ becomes sin. But what exactly can that mean? Well, think about it like this. Sometimes we think that we can get away with sin. If we don't get caught, if if no one hears our cruel words to our spouse or to our children, if no one sees our computer history, if no one else notices that I didn't get charged for this item at the cash register, if no one knows about this addiction, if no one sees the careless way I spend my money, 
If no one knows that stuff, then I'm okay. We can think of sin only in terms of guilt. And so we think if, if no one knows, then I'm not guilty. And yes, God sees all of this. And yes, God calls us, calls us to account with his perfect ethic of justice and love. But we can't stop here. Sin makes us guilty, but sin itself is not guilt. Sin is breakdown. Sin is corruption. Sin is quite literally a nothingness. Sin is not a thing, properly speaking, because if it was a thing, it would be part of creation, and that would mean God made it, and that expressly is not what we want to say or believe or affirm. So let me borrow an illustration that I've heard before that I think is, is helpful. Sin, sin is like a cavity in a tooth. It's, it's the hole in the place where the tooth should be. It's the lack of a fullness that is now a corrosive absence. It's fullness withering into nothingness. And think about it. There could be no cavity without a tooth. The cavity just is the goodness of the tooth perishing and withering, becoming undone, going back to nothing. And the same is true for the relation between sin and creation. Just like there could be no cavity without a tooth, Sin assumes the goodness of creation. That's because sin just is the goodness of creation withering, dying, going back to nothing. Sin is God's good creation from nothing going back to nothing. It's uncreation. It's the unmaking of what God has made. Yes, we are guilty because of sin, but this guilt is not sin itself. When we have a cavity, we are guilty for not taking care of our teeth. We are guilty because we've let the goodness of the tooth suffer and decay into nothingness. But the cavity is not the guilt itself. And what does this mean? Well, it means we cannot get away with sin. Sin shrinks us. Sin withers us. Sin just is the creature seeking to uncreate itself. And each time we sin... We change ourselves. We cannot escape this. We become a little less what God intends us to be. We become a little harder, a little meaner, a little more selfish, a little colder. We become a little more miserable and a little less able to receive the great joy that God intends for us. There is no escaping sin. Just like you can't escape the biological effects of eating a huge dessert even if your dietician knows nothing about it. Sin is breakdown, plain and simple. And so here's the question, a kind, of, a kind of diagnostic question. Where is the breakdown in our life? Are you suffering exhaustion and burnout like those 70%, 70% of workers that we mentioned earlier? If so, you are suffering a form of uncreation. You have a deep cavity within your soul that is growing, that is getting infected, that needs to be treated. Yes, work is important. Yes, we are meant to fulfill our vocational responsibilities. And actually, this is a key and essential and crucial part of our flourishing. But what Jesus says about the Sabbath is applicable here as well. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In the same way, the work week was made for man and not man for the work week. 
We, we, we can't get those reversed like we so often do. And just like the pain in our mouths pushes us to action, it pushes us to go see the dentist, so too should the pain in our souls not just be ignored or repressed or distracted, but it too should push us to action. If you are suffering breakdown in your physical body, in your family life, in your friendships, in your ethical standards, in your priorities, in your mental health, in your mood, because of the intensity of the work schedule, then please recognize this breakdown for what it actually is. In some way, shape, or form, it is the corruption of sin. It's the corruption that comes from our disordered loves. We love career in some way, shape, or form over people and even over God himself. What is the cause of sin here? It's loving some good created thing, a good created thing like work and vocation. Those are good things. But loving them as the greatest thing, loving them as only God the creator deserves to be loved in our heart. And just like giving yourself to a steady diet of desserts, cavities will follow. A good dessert is a thing to love. A, 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 I love a good dessert. But we have to love it in its proper place, right? If we strive to eat dessert as the main nutritional staple of our lives, we will destroy our teeth. And if we love the good thing that is our career more than the other things we are called to love more, friends, we will destroy much, much more than our teeth. Let me ask another question. Are you lonely? Are you deeply plugged into community? Here's a diagnostic. What is one deep, maybe even a desperate prayer request of at least three people in this congregation? If you've attended One Ancient Hope for a while and you can't answer that question, friends, that is a red flag. You are not plugging into this community. And if you are alone, your mental and physical health will crumble. Again, loneliness is just as lethal, just as harmful to our bodies as 15 cigarettes a day. And this is the difficult part, is that it's never been easier to be alone, to practice habits of loneliness. In early ages, we had to work much, much harder to be alone. But now it's easy. We can work, and we can buy anything we want, even groceries at home by ourselves. And we can fool ourselves into thinking through social media that we have close connections to other people. It's never been so easy to fool ourselves into isolation. But this is not how we are meant to live. Man does not live by Amazon Prime alone. Jesus called us to look at the birds and how they feed, and not the tweets and how they feud. But here we are so often, on our phone, by ourselves. If you are lonely, please recognize this breakdown for what it is. Let me ask you one more question. Because of overwork or exhaustion or loneliness, do you find ways to check out? Are you constantly distracting yourself? How many hours a day do you stare at your phone? Do, do you find yourself checking it all the time for no reason? I, I, heard, I learned this just yesterday that the average smartphone user, they check their phone more than 2,000 times a day, or they, they touch their phone more than 2,000 times a day. 2,000 times a day. 
In heavy users, it's more than 5,000 times a day. Think about that. And this is especially important for husbands and dads who can have a negative tendency to check out when things get complicated at home. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. Or are movies, do they end up being a special treat for your family, maybe once a week or so? Or are they the regular nightly routine? Sitting in a dark room, focusing on a screen, not talking to each other. And again, I also say this from personal experience, it's so easy for my family to just watch the Cubs game that night. But we're not really being together. Do you listen to podcasts nonstop, even if they're good and educational podcasts? How are you with silence? How are you with being just alone with your thoughts? Would it be possible for you to take a walk or a run without earbuds? If not, this too is breakdown. Because what is distraction? It's many things, but this is one common form it takes in our modern life. It comes from getting exactly what you think you want most and realizing that you would rather escape it. You got that job that you always wanted, but it asks far, far too much of you, and now you want to escape the very thing that you've worked so hard to get. Or maybe you have the family that you've always wanted, but things are just too hard and complicated, and so just let me escape into my phone, and I'll just keep swiping and swiping and swiping. In fact, distraction is the main way we deal with breakdown, with our uncreation. It's all the ways that we work so hard not to notice breakdown because, well, we don't want to change anything. We want to take the path of least resistance. And we're pretty certain that there is no way that things could be different. But again, this is what the cross is all about. So let's look at Christ's uncreation. Remember what happens on the cross. Everything goes dark. Creation is moving in reverse. We might say the light of the world is put out. And this is fitting because the cross just is the example of goodness breaking down. Think about what we see here. Christ is God, the Son, become human. He comes and he lives the perfect life of service and worship and love. He is love itself embodied in human form. This is the very life free from breakdown. This is quite literally the only human life free from the corruption of sin. Christ does not disintegrate. Christ integrates everywhere he goes. He does not work the cavity-like holes of sin. He works the wholeness of righteousness in each and every encounter. But what happens? He experiences on the cross the deepest forms of breakdown, of uncreation, of undoing. And this is very different from our uncreation. We, we suffer the consequences of our sin because we are sinners. This isn't true of, of Christ. He's wholly unique in this respect. Christ suffers the breakdown of sin, but he does so as the one who is holy and fully without sin. Christ takes upon himself a human nature that can hunger and thirst and die. Christ takes upon himself a human nature that can suffer, suffer the deepest depths of sorrow. 
Christ takes upon himself a human nature that can suffer the breakdown of sin, even though he is without sin and the corruption of sin. And here on the cross, friends, we see all of this breakdown come together and converge. To begin with, Christ is condemned in a total breakdown of justice. As we've seen, we looked at this in an earlier passage, Christ is sentenced to death in a rush trial in the middle of the night by a kangaroo court that is explicitly looking for false witnesses. And then what happens? After this mockery of justice, Christ is mocked by those who are charged to carry out this unjust sentence. They strip him of his clothes. They cast lots for his garments. They they place a sign above the cross in, in bitter insult and savage satire. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Justice has broken down completely here. Christ lives the perfect life of love, but because of the self-interest of others, the very systems in society meant to protect justice here become means of perpetuating and carrying out injustice. Jewish and Roman laws that were meant to protect the common good, they become a means of collective criminal activity. This is society falling apart. This is the corruption of sin. This is the breakdown, the breakdown of justice. And Christ also suffers deep relational breakdown. He does so both with his his fellow Jewish countrymen and with his own disciples. We are told that those who walk by wag their head at Christ and they deride him. Really think about that. These are the same crowds who just a few days ago were flocking to him. They were the very same crowds that he served and served and served, loved and loved and loved, taught and taught and taught, And here, after they've been convinced to let the murderer Barabbas go in order to sentence Christ, the giver of life, to death, here, in complete contrast, this same crowd looks upon the one they formerly flocked to with contempt and derision and spite. They have renounced him. They have betrayed him. They have left him alone. They have turned their backs wholly upon him. And even his own disciples have left and denied him. We remember Peter did this three times. In what appears Christ's moment of greatest need, the very ones whom he poured himself into for three full years, they're nowhere to be found. Christ did nothing for another that wasn't the very embodiment of good and gracious love, and yet here he is alone. This is all things social falling apart. This is the corruption of sin. This is breakdown, relational breakdown. But there's more. Christ cries upon the cross, giving voice to the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ suffers a kind of breakdown with God the Father in his human nature. And this is the deepest relational breakdown of all. And and we have to be careful. Understanding exactly what is happening here is is complicated. And we want to be careful not to say too much nor too little. One thing we can't say is that Christ is here suffering on the cross, the greatest suffering that any human will ever experience. 
Sometimes we hear statements like this, but, but as John Calvin points out, this actually skews what his suffering is. Because Christ does not suffer despair. He, he suffers as one with, with sure and certain hope. He suffers with one whose hope knows that his efforts will be effective. There's deep suffering here, but we have to be careful. The suffering of the cross is not the hopeless suffering of hell. But there is real, deep suffering here. The words of, of Reformed scholastic theologian Francis Turretin are very helpful in navigating this issue, and I, I want to quote those in full. Turretin says this about Christ on the cross. Christ experiences a desertion, a spiritual and internal suffering from most oppressive sense of God's wrath resting upon him because of our sins, whereby God, suspended, for a little while, the favorable presence of grace and consolation and happiness, so that Christ might be able to suffer all of the punishment due to us. Christ's human soul experiences on the cross a kind of wrath, a desertion of God's good and gracious presence. The overflowing and joyous delight of the Father, for a time, is removed. And Christ describes this as a kind of forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ in his humanity is completely alone. His society, his people, his friends have turned their back on him. And in his human soul, he even experiences a kind of divine desertion. This is breakdown. This is comprehensive breakdown. This is all the effects of our sin bearing down upon the sinless one. This is Christ becoming a curse, becoming sin, and him doing so all on our behalf. This is Christ bearing the consequences of our sin upon his own shoulders. Again, as Paul tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took upon himself the breakdown of sin as the one who was without sin and without any corruption of sin. But he did this. He redeemed us from the consequences of our sin so that we might receive the consequences of his righteousness. And this brings us to our third and final point, re-creation. As the crowd of mockers looks with contempt upon Christ crucified, they yell, he saved others. He cannot save himself. They don't realize, though, that the very way he saves others is by not saving himself. In crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The crowd thinks that he is calling for Elijah, and they say, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. They don't realize that they have the whole thing backwards. Christ does not need Elijah. Elijah needs Christ. Christ has not come to save Elijah. It's the other way around. Christ has come to save all of those with faith in God's promise. 
This is true for all of those who lived before the crucifixion, those like Elijah. It's true for all those there at the persecution. It's true for all of those after the persecution who have faith in Christ as well. We, like Elijah, need him. Again, the crowd yells out, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires. For he said, I am the Son of God. They don't realize that Christ is God. He is God, the Son, become human, and he does not need to trust in the deliverance of God. He is the very deliverance of God for all of those who trust in him. But again, the crowd yells out, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They don't realize, though, that by staying on the cross, the true temple is being destroyed. The temple of Christ's flesh, the very place where God and humanity meet in perfect communion. And then, on the cross, Christ's humanity is killed. He breathes his last and he gives up his spirit. And this, too, is breakdown. It's a consequence of our sin that Christ bears on our behalf. It is the breakdown of the two core aspects of his humanity, his body and his soul. They are torn apart. Christ's human body is laid in the tomb, and Christ's human soul descends to the place of the righteous dead, to Abraham's bosom. Christ is quite literally broken in two. And so Christ suffers his final breakdown. He has suffered breakdown in all of his relationships, both with God and neighbor, and now he experiences the very breakdown of his humanity. And Christ takes all of this upon himself for us. But again, the temple of Christ's body is not simply destroyed. He will rebuild it in three days. And when this happens, three days later, when he is resurrected, everything changes. Death, breakdown, corruption, all of the many consequences of our sin, they themselves are undone. Death and breakdown and nothingness are defeated. Yes, they are still here, but friends, they are in their death throes. Death is dying, and one day it will be dead. The breakdown of creation is itself breaking down. The rain and sin and death have broken Upon the cross, light and life itself became human and suffered darkness and death. But how can darkness and death hold the very light and life who is God? This would be like trying to catch a falling boulder with a baseball mitt or, or, or like trying to catch the fullness of a rushing river in a coffee mug. You just can't do it. And we see this right away in the rumblings of the earth right when Christ dies like a stomach that can't hold the fullness of the meal that it's just eating, the ground rumbles and shakes when Christ dies. The grave, the land of death, cannot hold, it cannot contain the life of Christ. The earth quakes because it has bitten off more than it can chew or swallow or digest. And as strange as it sounds, we even see a shot of Christ's fullness of life discharged to those who are in the ground. 
we, we see something not unlike a, an electric volt that brings some battery-operated toys back to life for a short time as, as certain saints are raised, raised from the dead, and, and, and they enter into Jerusalem. And properly speaking, this is not resurrection. Christ is the first to be raised, never to die again. And for all of the rest of us, this is the hope that we look to. But for a short time, when Christ dies, certain saints are resuscitated. The land of the dead simply cannot contain the fullness of life that is Christ. And then, in three days, Christ, the true temple, is raised again. His humanity is resurrected, never to die, never to suffer again the breakdown and corruption, the consequences of sin. The curtain of the old temple, that curtain that separated a sinful people from a holy God, is torn in two. However, Christ's humanity, the true and better temple, is made whole again. It's made one as the two parts of Christ's humanity, his soul and his resurrected body, come together and reunite as one forever. On the cross, Christ's humanity is uncreated, but then it's recreated so that we might experience the hope and glory of recreation ourselves. Death is defeated, but it's still dying. But friends, its hands and teeth are shattered. It's true. Accepting Christ's glorious return in our lifetime, all of us here will die but we will die certain of the hope of recreation, one without death and corruption and undoing. If we have faith in Christ, his present just is our future. And even now, the way of recreation is open to us. Christ took upon himself the consequences of our breakdown and sin so that we might receive the wonderful consequences of his righteousness. Christ was forsaken by God the Father so that on our behalf, so that we could receive, be received by God. Christ cried out to God and the heavens were silent. But he did this so that when we cry out to God, we might receive those blessed words that only he deserves. You are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Because Christ gave up this relationship on the cross, now we can experience the loving communion of God, our Father, the loving communion that Christ alone deserves but has given to us. And right now, Christ offers deep communion with others, a communion that works against the breakdown and the corruption of sin. This is the community of the church. This is the community of those who know that all that they have is a gift from God. This is the community of those who know that God alone can satisfy the deepest desires of their heart. And together they seek out their Lord side by side. This is the community, friends, where we have nothing at all to prove to one another. This is the community where we learn not to rest our identity and our worth, and our work, or a success, or a money, or a resume, or a status, or beauty, or a million other things, because this is the community that moves out from the delight and the approval of God himself, the only judge that really matters. And this also means, friends, that if you are not plugged into a Christian community, then it is not possible to live a healthy Christian life. Let me say that again. 
If you are not plugged into a Christian community, it is not possible to live a healthy Christian life. Christ died to create just such a community. And so if you are not involved in this church community or another church community, please get involved. If you're here, join a community group. Serve in our children and youth ministry. Help us with our monthly college dinners. Reach out to someone about discipleship. Take part in our Ed Hour this fall. Ask about our community partnerships in the city. We'd love to join you in this work. Because, friends, Christ suffered the breakdown of his divine and his human relationships so that we don't have to. The whole point of the cross is that things really can and really should be different. This is what the cross is all about. Darkness fell, the lights went out, but now the new light of Christ, of recreation, shines brightly upon the earth. For three hours, everything went dark, but since then, our hope has never shined brighter. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've given to us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has suffered the breakdown that we deserve so that we might have fullness of life. Lord, help us to receive that gift. Help us to receive it well in gratitude and love and help us to receive it as a community that our love may grow for you and also for one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.